Okay, we are recording. Hello, hello. I am here with um, George Temple, otherwise known as my dad. Um, and he is going to tell us a little bit about his life of um, crime back in the day. And, I, and also um, how he created such wonderful and um, brilliant children. <laughs> and uh, how in the world we are also perfect. I'm going to read a little uh, excerpt of his book um, that is sold on Amazon. It's called Burning Bar. Um, it's under the name uh, Sean's Storm because um, some of the people that you talk about in this book uh, would kill someone, correct? Um, so you have to... Uh, <laughs> exact anonymity. Yeah. yeah. Back then you had to go under a... But I think we're a little bit more safe now. A lot of people have passed away. Um, so anyway, here is a little excerpt to his book uh, if you're interested. And this kind of gives give a little um, intel as to what we're going to be talking about today and stuff. Um, it says, I had the key to every safe in America. From eating mayonnaise sandwiches as a child and longing uh, to escape his family's poverty, a good-looking, strong kid learned to get what he wanted by adopting a life of crime. Also, forgive me, I, I don't think I've read anything out loud since third grade. Um, <laughs> he, he started with, I promise I can read. He started with baby steps using a crowbar to open coin boxes. He soon graduated to using his pry bars to open safes so he could have the car uh, he so desperately wanted. Before long, he was supplementing his job as a nightclub bouncer with late evening safe cracking sprees. Then he hit the big time, thanks to learning how to use a burning bar to cut open the toughest safes. Go inside the mind of a young thug who discovered that once he paid his dues in prison, he could apply his burning ambition to legitimate legal goals. This thief turned millionaire has lots of advice for anyone who gets a bad start in life. He mixes his autobiographical saga with tales of his sexual exploits, pathos, and some true comedy that would make this book the perfect subject for an entertaining movie. Um, so, I guess we'll start off by um, saying that you're my dad, you have how many daughters and stuff you have and such. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Thank all of you for uh, attending uh, Della's podcast, and I also want to thank Della for not only allowing me to be here, but adjusting the lights so I don't look bald. <laughs> that, that was a prerequisite to this this program. Yes, I have. <laughs> we're so ugly, we're sitting in the dark. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I do have four beautiful, and I want to preface smart daughters. Uh, Della was my third born, and... Uh, every time I see Della, I tell her that she's my third favorite child. <laughs> and what I don't understand is she always asks me, Dad, please tell me someday, who's your first and second favorite? <laughs> Rude. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, um, I'm trying to think, I guess we could just start off with, uh, give a little, I know this gave, I guess, a little bit of background, but just give a little bit of background into where, I don't know, we don't have to make it super formal, just where, um... I guess where it started, like like this says, um, you know, the first time, the first time you started kind of thinking that you were going to do some crime for money or whatever, okay. or whatever you think is the most interesting, you know, well, whatever. Briefly, in my mid-teens, I pulled some uh, crimes, uh, strong arm robbery, got probation because of my age, and I gave all that up and I started uh, driving a truck, which I really enjoyed the job, and I would stop by my friend's house on the way to work. And uh, there was a group of them there, and they were all going out 
boosting that day. And boosting is a term used for shoplifting only in the 10th degree, the high, high dollar shoplifting. And at that particular time, they were, breaking, they were walking into jewelry stores, actually lifting the lid on the jewelry counters and stealing all the diamond rings. And I'll explain how they did that shortly. They asked me if I wanted to go along. I said, no, I've got to go to work. The next morning, I stopped back by on the way to work again, and they had all made $1,000 a piece. And they said, well, you want to go today, George? I said, no, but I, I got to go to work. The next day was the same thing. They were all making an average of a thousand bucks a day. And you got to remember the time period, which was in the seventies, that was a lot more money than today. So about, that's a lot of money now. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, about the fourth time I came and they invited me, I took off work and I went with them and I made a thousand dollars. Then I went back to work. They went out and made another thousand. I finally started calculating how much money they were making while I was making $50 a day driving a truck, I eventually quit my job and became a full-time thief. You know, in regards to what they were actually doing or what we were actually doing, three or four guys would go into a jewelry store. Sometimes there would be females involved and they would stand in front of the counter while one of them hid behind the counter and popped open the glass and took all the jewelry out and then would leave. And we did this so much and so often on every day in a several hundred mile circle that eventually the word got out, I'm guessing through the insurance companies, everybody in several hundred miles started gluing their countertops down. <laughs> so there was no more going in and popping up the glass and taking the jewelry. Uh, we graduated from there. I won't say graduated. We digressed from there into going into stores like a big Walmart or someone that sold pistols. And we steal 20 pistols at a time, but our incomes dropped dramatically. Did you do it while you, while they were open or were you like going in at night? Absolutely. We would try to hit like a, a Walmart or a store like that real early in the morning before all the, you've been to counters at Walmart or big stores like that. And you couldn't find an attendant in the sporting goods department. That's what we looked for. Oh. We'd go behind the glass and take all their pistols. And there was a guy that was kind of chubby and he had a pouch underneath his jacket and he would drop 20 pistols in his shirt and we would walk out. But again, we were used to dealing with high dollar diamonds and pistols that we were probably getting a hundred bucks for just didn't equate. So I started looking for ways to make more money. Okay. And then what did you start? Uh, well, how do you, how do you divvy out the money in a situation like that? Like, do, is it all equal or is one person's job harder and they get a little bit more cash or what do you do? In the case of uh, boosting or shoplifting, it was always all equal. I eventually changed all that uh, as I took control of, <laughs> of our profession. We started, we started hitting houses, maybe three houses a night, which I'm ashamed of now. And we would steal TVs, guns, whatever they had. And we would sell them to a local fence. And we were making, you know, five to $700 a night and eventually I ran into a professional safe burger who was used to opening square door safes. And a square door safe is simply what it says. It's a door that's square. Most of them have a sheet of uh, metal on the front and inside it's two or three inches of fire brick. It's not solid steel. You can open those with a crow hammer, uh, crowbar and a sledgehammer. He taught me how to do that. 
after doing that to the point of exhausting just about every square door safe in a hundred mile circle, uh, they just almost didn't exist anymore. And all the safes, like you see in a big grocery store, had a big thick round door on it, six inches thick. So all those safes, were they at people's residential homes or were you going into other different places and getting into those? On occasions, as you know, safes in residential homes are, are not as prevalent as businesses. So we started going into, you know, gas stations, sporting goods stores, anywhere where we could find a safe. Are you breaking into those places at this point? Or how are you getting to them without people getting on your ass? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yes, this is uh, nighttime burglaries. Normally, we would climb up on the roof because they had alarms on the door. We would cut a hole in the roof, go down into the <laughs> uh, store, whatever type it was, and we would open the safe. Well, when we got to the round door safes that are solid steel, a crowbar and a sledgehammer were no longer the tools of choice. You just couldn't do it. So we realized that we had to get an acetylene torch and burn them open. Neither one of us, or there was myself and my uh, main partner, neither one of us had ever used a torch before. But he had a cousin that actually taught welding for the state of Missouri. So we drove down to the school where he was working, teaching students how to weld, and we told him what we wanted to do. Well, we, the first one that we tried, because we couldn't weld, we screwed it up and we didn't make any money. So we went back to his cousin and said, look, you gotta go with us on one of these jobs. You can make six months salary in one night. And we assured him how safe it was, how we were too smart to get caught. How did you screw up the first one? We couldn't burn through it. We ran into a steel safe that had brass layers and the brass did not burn like regular steel, these things that were unexpected. Okay. And anyway, so after much, much convincing, this guy who taught school agreed to go with us to our first job, and we took a large grocery store in a town about 50 miles outside of Kansas City. We uh, you know, convinced him to go. He was scared to death. He finally got in there, and we got the safe cut open. And just as we were leaving, a squad car pulled up in back, and a, he jumped out of the car with a canine. And we were coming off the side of the roof on the other side of the store. And you think this school teacher wasn't nervous at this point. We oh all were. Oh, my God. We ran down a hill, and there was this, I'll call it a river. It was either a big creek or a river. But it was probably 30, 40 foot wide. It was rushing water. And our only way to get out of there was to get into this water. Well, this... I'm going to call him kind of a fat kid, uh, didn't want to go into that water. And when that canine came down the hill at him, he had to make a choice. Did he want to be eaten by the canine or take a chance on drowning? And all I can say is that fat boy can really swim. <laughs> so we got out in the water. We had the money. And I had two or three bags of coin along with uh, the green in my pocket. And I was about to drown because the, the coins were so heavy. And we're going downstream. We're being rushed downstream. Oh I had to throw the coins away. It was either that or drown. We ended up getting out about a half mile down. We couldn't see the police anymore, but we also knew they had surrounded the area. They knew we were in the area. They knew we were on foot. They found our car parked somewhere close to the vicinity of the store. And it was just a matter of time. By dawn, they would have found us. All of a sudden, we see a train going by, 
And I said, God, I wish that train would slow down so we could get on it. And that's exactly what happened. It slowed down <laughs> to a slower pace. We ran up and got on this train. We didn't know where it was going. <laughs> we, it started going north and we figured we were gonna end up in Canada, but that was still good. We, needed, <laughs> we didn't wanna be in Missouri anymore. And we happened to get on a train that had a whole bunch of new cars on it. It was wintertime, we were freezing cold because we'd been in a river, it was probably 40 degrees outside. We got in one of those uh, cars that was destined for a dealership somewhere, cranked up the motor, turned on the heater, and next thing we know, it wound back to Kansas City. We were actually in the freight yard of a big terminal in Kansas City. <laughs> and we called somebody on a payphone because we didn't have cell phones then, and they came down and picked us up. That fat boy that did the welding was so mad and oh, so upset with us, he kept saying, you guys told me this would be easy. You almost got me. And he, he complained and bitched so much, we decided he didn't deserve much of a share. So we gave him about 500 bucks. He didn't know the amount of money that was in there. And we said all we got was opening up money. And the rest of us split probably four or $5,000 a piece. I don't remember wow, at the time. Wow, that's a lot for, I mean... That's a lot now. Yeah. Like I said, that's crazy. It, it was great money back then. But after watching him do the safe, I no longer needed him. Uh, and then, and if you have any questions along the way, Della, please just ask. How uh, did the, how do, whenever you drove up in a car and you left the car there, how did it, did, was the technology just not very sophisticated back then? Or whose car was it that you drove up in so that they didn't trace that immediately back to you guys? The uh, my main um, partner in crime had a sister who was very savvy, and she was at home, and we took her car, and we already it was predetermined that if they found our car in a neighborhood where there was a crime, she would say it got stolen. Oh, that was okay. the end of that, and that's what happened here. Okay, they knew better, but there was no proof against it. Oh, okay. But anyway, that was the start of us burning safes with a, an acetylene torch. And just like in the jewelry business where we were lifting the cases and eventually they got too smart for us and they glued them down, all these big grocery stores and places that we were hitting for an average of 20000 a night, which not every night, but at least once a week we would hit a grocery store, sometimes twice. They went from the square door safes to round doors and we didn't really have any problem cutting over for round doors. Then they went to a torch and uh, a torch resistant safe that was of a different type of steel. A, a normal acetylene torch could not cut. Were you hitting the same ever the same the same places over again? We had done that. I've hit the same place up to three times. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. I feel so. <laughs> Today I, I look back and I feel sorry for those people. But yeah, if it yes, was he's a, not this person anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so anyway, we, we hit all these safes and then all, the, all of a sudden we go to one and the torch will not work anymore. And there's a sign on the safe that says torch resistant. And everybody had switched to these supposedly uh, burn proof safes. I went home, I was kind of the leader. I was, I was inventive, I was creative. And I'll tell you some creative things I did. Uh, and also, let me say this, as I, if you read my book, and if you don't, I'll probably kill myself, but 
Uh, and delegates nothing <laughs> for Christmas. Yeah. Delegates nothing for Christmas if I don't tell you that. But uh, I invented a lot of ways that, that, you know, really made us a lot of money. But uh, I went to these welding shops and I asked them, what do you have that will cut torch resistance uh, safe? What will cut through concrete? And they said, what you need is a burning bar. Well, what I didn't know at the time is, and they're still prominent in the welding industry, it's, it's a magnesium alloy rod that's 10 foot long. You light it with an acetylene torch and it blows nothing but pure oxygen into the safe and it's, it runs at several thousand degrees. And you can cut a hole in a six inch safe in a matter of probably 10 seconds. So when you buy one of those, because they are so detrimental to the safes and, criminal, uh, and criminals use them, the FBI comes and interviews you and wants to know why you want it. Well, I found that out in advance, so we always use fictitious names, things like that. Got someone who wasn't well-known like we were to buy it for us, things like that. What do they do at the shop? Does the shop, the shop person calls the FBI and says this person is buying this, or it's just on their, they just are checking out for it? You know, uh, I never got that answer, but I, I do think they must have a report. It's almost like buying a gun. Mm -hmm. And they had a report that went right to them. It's kind of a sketchy thing to ask to have exactly. to walk in and ask someone. Exactly. But, but we bought them over and over again with no problem. You know. They were ten feet long. Yeah, it's a rod that's ten foot long. But we would cut them in because a lot of times we were working in a check cashing booth, like you would see at a grocery store, mm -hmm. and uh, you know there might be six, seven feet in there. So we would cut them in like three and four foot sections. And I would do the burning because it put out so much heat. I had burns on my arms and my back. And, but very few people could stand the heat. And I was so focused on that money that I hardly you know, acknowledged that I was having burns on my arm. Mm -hmm. I had long sleeves on. I was wearing sunglasses. Those hoods and things you see in welding, you can't, you can't breathe in those. You can't run in those. You have to be stripped down where you can get the hell out if you have to. But I did it with sunglasses and long sleeve shirts and I got a few burns and it was well worth the pain. But I noticed that everybody I went with could not stand it threw so many sparks. It scared them to death of burning. So I was the only one in the group that could use the burning bar. How many people would usually go with you at a time? It usually took, uh, we could do it with three, but four to five were better. We had to haul uh, large tanks of, of oxygen and acetylene to the rooftop. I mean, someone had to pull up at the bottom, tie a rope on it. There had to be at least two guys on top to pull it up the side of the building because they were so heavy. Jesus. Yeah, and then when you're in the actual uh, safe caching booth where you're burning the safe, the uh, you, take, you have to have an assistant because as soon as I poke the first hole in there, which is about an inch wide, the money and things inside the safe almost immediately catch on fire. So my assistant shuts the oxygen off and shuts the flame off. And we have a hose that's already sitting there running water all over the store. And uh, we're very thoughtful. <laughs> and we put the hose in the safe, we fill it up with water. And that saves the money from burning up. So uh, as soon as the safe is full of water, we turn the burning bar back on, cut a hole the size of a, a dinner dish, reach in and take all the money. That's, that's the way it worked. But, uh, we, you know, we did this 
over and over, like, like I was just explaining, that I sometimes did the same story three times. And we graduated from uh, small safes to bigger safes to we actually hit some banks. And uh, I, I was, it was my career. And I felt like there was just no end to it. <laughs> How, uh, hmm, what, what about like a close call story or something like that? Or what's the next one that's prevalent on your mind of y'all doing that? Was there any that didn't go the way you planned and yes. it scared the hell out of y'all or what? Yes, there, there was many. Uh, the, you know, obviously, you know, jumping in a river in the middle of the winter and running away was a very close call. But, uh, once we were doing a big Safeway store, if you guys are familiar with the brand, and people saw the smoke that were walking by the shopping center and they called the fire department. So we were almost to the money and here comes the fire department. So we had to exit out the back door because of the smoke and the steam that was, was all over the store. Uh, in other um, situations, we uh, some safes, were actually armed with tear gas inside. And when you open the door, it would tear gas you. Oh, God. And we would lay around on our backs and choke and try to catch our breath. <laughs> and then once we did, we'd get the money and leave. I could I honestly say it made me sick a few times, but it never kept me from taking the money. You know? Oh, God. I thought it was a very clever trick, though. <laughs> when did... Uh... When did the car, the cars graduate, or what was the next step? When did you graduate to cars, or was that the next step, or what was the next step after that? Well, you know, even though our main income was the burning bar and large safes, the uh, I, I wouldn't turn down an opportunity to make money. Um, you know, cars, I didn't really like to do cars. I considered that small time. I, I worked in a, a uh, I, I'm going to use the word mob, nightclub in Kansas City that it was owned by a, a mob figure and he asked me to steal a car back that a friend had sold it was a hot rod from a drag strip and the guy had never paid for it and he wanted that motor back really bad and I didn't want to do it and he suggested that a favor here and there could get me a favor here and there and I knew he wanted it done that was uh, you know one car I stole and when I stole it it was sitting in the, this was a, a Dodge Charger that was all beefed up with several hundred horsepower and it had headers on it, which was really loud. And I promised the guy I was going to steal it. And every time I would go by there, he was having a big party in his backyard, lights on, music blaring, and they were working on his car. This was their love of their life. I couldn't find him, not home. I, so every night when I got off work from my bouncer's job, I would go by and see if this car was unattended and I lo and behold there it was and it was in a part of, the, of Kansas City we called it Spanish Town you had to cross a little bridge and go up on a hill and it was primarily Spanish people that lived up there so if they saw you you obviously looked out of place so I had my uh, girlfriend drop me off who eventually became my second wife I've had three of those <laughs> nobody could stay married to me and I don't I don't blame them but uh, so I said, drop me off. And we were using walkie-talkies. That's how primitive we were. I didn't have uh, cell phones again. So I went into the backyard where this car was. And I already knew where the toggle switches were under the dash that shut the motor off. You had to know all this to get it started. I sprayed it with some ether 
in the carburetors. And when I started it up, it sounded like a roar of a jet plane and the lights came on in the house. And there was also a CD player in the back seat. It was a track tape player and it was playing um, Runaway. Uh, I can't say I forgot the name of the artist. That, it's a that, great song. Yeah, it was playing Runaway at the you know at the highest decimal it would go, and everybody in the neighborhood could hear this car, and they come running out of the house, and I I couldn't get the thing started. Uh, it took me a few minutes to get it started. I was just grinding, and then all of a sudden the engine roared, and that's when everybody come running out, and I got out on the street, and I pressed the accelerator, and the thing just fishtailed and almost went up in the air. It wasn't meant to be driven on the road. And uh, one guy had a shotgun, I remember, and I went the wrong way, it was a dead end street, and I had to come back right by their house. And I saw the shotgun aimed at the car, and the owner said, no, no, don't, don't shoot my car, thank God. <laughs> and I went down the hill, and I was gonna go across the bridge and out. And when I got there, the police were there, sitting there on the bridge. I drove down to the bridge. I knew they were coming from the house. The cops were sitting on the bridge, and I made a quick U-turn in the middle of the street. And when the cops saw me make a U-turn and I was hot riding, at this point, he did not realize that I had stolen the car and he wanted to arrest me. So he starts his car up and thank God he came across the bridge and it opened the bridge up for me because it was a one lane bridge going out of that neighborhood. I roared out of that neighborhood and that was the last I ever saw him. I took the, I took the car to my boss and I got a few hundred bucks for doing it. But more than that, I got his, um, loyalty or friendship, which was important to me at the time. You know. But uh, you know, over my career, I did not just do safes. You know, I've, I've had some extremely uh, odd, uh, for an example, someone would tell me they knew where there was a $50,000 ivory chess set and they wanted me to go steal it for them and they already had a predetermined price. And I drove all the way to Michigan to get this chess set for this guy. And I went with one other guy. And when I went in the house, I remembered it was, it was like a mansion out in the middle of nowhere. And it was dark. But as, as soon as I got in, I noticed there was a smell. The whole house stunk in, in spite of it being a mansion. It smelled like a zoo. <laughs> and I was walking around and I'd been told that it was in an upstairs bedroom. So my uh, friend was downstairs looking out the window watching for someone to drive up. I went upstairs to get the chest set. I didn't know which bedroom it was. I was open door after door after door. And I get to this one door, I open it up, and there's a full-grown lion in that room, a real lion. It was their pet. The lion jumped over my head, thank God, ran down the steps, and I hollered at my friend. I said, there's a lion in the house, a He's real like, lion. Yeah. <laughs> And he flew out the door. I didn't know for sure if I wanted to go down the steps or out the window because I certainly didn't want to run into that line again. But I finally <laughs> looked around. I didn't see him. I don't know where he went. And out the door I went. My friend was already in the car ready to go. But I didn't make a dime at that place, and I never went back. <laughs> they kept the lion in their house? Yes. Very, very odd behavior, you know. And then... Um, you know, in regards, since we're talking about animals, I've had a lot of run-ins with animals. I'm a real animal lover. Uh, one time we went into a uh, auto parts store that had a lot of chrome wheels and stuff that you'd only want if you had hot rods. 
and they had two guard dogs in the um, out in the lot protecting them. Well, my friend had gone to that auto parts store on a regular basis to buy things, and he got to know the dogs. He brought a little bit of food with him. They recognized him. We opened up the car door of one of the cars, threw the food in there, and the two guard dogs were put in there. We, we got the stuff we wanted, and we left. I'm sure that those guard dogs were not real popular with their family anymore. That's smart. Yeah, but the uh, I think the best story regarding animals, in Chicago, there was a, a pawn shop, and it uh, was known for jewelry, and it was high dollar. And I used to buy my girlfriends and wives, I always had one of each, and I, I'm not proud of that today, but I'm, I'm telling you what the past had. Uh, they, uh, so I would buy a lot of my jewelry there. And they always kept the expensive stuff in the back room. No one could see it who walked in as a customer, but I was so regular, I got to go into the back room. Well, in the back room is there's this big safe. It's about six, eight foot tall. It's a monster and holds a lot of jewelry. And also there was this big black, um, guard dog and he was so vicious he, he salivated when he looked at you and he was growling and he had a chain on his leg or on his his neck and it was hooked to the leg of a chair and i would go back there and talk to the guy that owned this store i was very popular there because i bought so much and this dog would snarl and i was always praying that the chain didn't break and i went so often i i felt sorry for that dog uh, the dog never got to go outside he crapped in there and he ate in there. I don't even think he could see good in the daylight. He was what he was. He was there to protect that man's money. It's terrible. Yeah. So over, I don't know, probably six months, I went in there several different times and I got to know the dog and the guy kept warning me, he's gonna bite you, he's gonna bite you, George. And I kept, uh, you know, giving treats and, and before long, I could pet the dog. So one night I planned, I was actually working in Chicago, a legal job. And one night I decided I was, I was leaving town. I wanted to hit that place before I went. So we broke in, went down through the roof and sure enough, the, the dog, dogs down there hooked on the chain. And uh, I started talking to him and it took me about 30 minutes for that dog to remember who I was. Cause remember I'm up high on top of the safe. I came down the roof right on top of the safe. I didn't want to be down there around the dog, even though I'd been petting him. And he finally calmed down. I always took some treats and I climbed off the safe and I started petting him. We burned open the safe. I got, you know, probably $100,000 worth of jewelry and $30,000, $40,000 in cash. It was a great haul for, for us at the time. And there was only two of us involved in that. Uh, and after we, uh, I had my choice. I had to go back out the roof or set off the burglar alarm in the, in the store by going out the door. And it's very difficult climbing back out of those roofs. So I decided uh, I wanted uh, to take that animal with me. And <laughs> so I told my friend, I said, go get the car. And it was a Corvette at the time. I drove, I've had a dozen different Corvettes. I had a fascination with them. I said, I, I want you to pull up to the door and as soon as you get there you you call me on the, the walkie-talkie and tell me you're out there and I'm gonna push the door open real fast and I'm gonna come out and he said why do you want to do that I said just do what I say <laughs> well I, I came out um, with a dog on a leash 
<laughs> what in the hell are you doing with him? And he's, don't put him in here with me. <laughs> anyway, I threw him in the back seat. And it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. That guy was so so petrified of that dog. And I don't blame him. And he makes sure a nut for running it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, we drove out of there. I left Chicago and I took the dog with me. <laughs> That's awesome. How long did you have that dog? Uh, several years. You know, I, I don't know how old it was when I got it. It had been there a long time, but I probably had the dog five or six years before it finally died, you know. And uh, it's like I tell people, uh, he was a product of his environment because uh, when I got him home, he never even attempted to bite anybody else. That makes me so mad when people treat animals like that. Yeah. Well. But that was, that was a fun story. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and I, one of the other things in regards to my book, I, I, one of the cars I stole, which Della's jogging my memory when she mentioned cars, on Christmas Eve, a lot of times we pull big jobs on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve because some of these big stores always had night staff or night watchmen. But on Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, everybody would go home. Oh. I went into this dealership five minutes before closing. I'd already figured out that they made a night deposit about 30 minutes before they closed every night. And I wanted to, what my intentions were to buy a car, a new Corvette, which I did, and knowing that they'd already made the night deposit 30 minutes before, I got there five minutes before they closed, paid cash for the car, and we left. I dropped the Corvette off just a block from there, came back in a van with my partners, climbed up on the roof of the dealership, went through the roof, opened their safe, got about $20,000, $30,000 out of their safe, and there was one stack in particular of five or $6,000. Remember, vets were not as expensive back then. You could buy a brand new vet for $6,000. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there's a big stack of hundreds there that I had just given him. I put that in my pocket and uh, we divided the money and I went home. It was Christmas Eve and my uh, daughter, I only had one at the time, was waiting there. When are we gonna get to open the Christmas gifts? Well, wait till daddy gets home. So anyway, I get home and uh, my ex-wife, my first wife, uh, you know, said, well, she's been waiting for the Christmas presents. And I said, oh, she said, did you have a good day at work? My daughter knew no better, of course. And I said, yeah, it was a great day at work. I said, look out in the parking or out in the driveway. Daddy's got a brand new Corvette. And my wife's first thing is, well, when do I get my Riviera? Because I had been promised her one. And I handed her a bag full of wet money. Remember, we had to always wet the money down. I handed her a bag of wet money. She asked no questions. Goes <laughs> in the other room. A couple days later, she had her new Riviera. And my girlfriend, who eventually became my second wife, got a new mink coat. But uh, I know I sound like, especially if there's women on this podcast, I'm sure there are. <laughs> you're hating me right now. I want... It's not many women. It's mostly dudes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <All> right. <laughs> I, I want you to know that I was, when I finally went to prison, I was labeled a sociopath. If you know the definition, they don't care about anybody but themselves. And I thought that they were just being cruel to me. You know, I didn't notice that I was, you know. But, uh, yes, I, I, you know, what I wanted, I got. If I wanted a girlfriend and I was married, none of that mattered to me. 
And I'm telling you the story about how I was a bouncer criminal, and that was my mental attitude years ago. Today, I would not want to hurt anybody, steal anything. I'm kind of like, you know, ex-smokers are more aggressive towards smokers today because they can't stand it because <laughs> they want smoke. That's the way I feel about thieves. You know, in fact, a thief broke into my house with Della's mother there, and I, I, I was lucky enough to be home. He thought I was gone. I tricked him because we'd been getting these door knockings and phone calls, and I felt like something was up. as when we first moved to Dallas. And I was in an apartment complex, and I started to leave for work. I drove a black Corvette, and uh, my ex-wife drove a white Cadillac. So it was very distinguished in this apartment complex. As I'm walking out the door, it's pouring down rain, and there's a red pickup parked at the very back of the parking lot, and I watched him park. Why would anybody want to park at the back of the lot when it's raining. So I went around the block real quick and uh, I came in the back door and I told my ex-wife, I said, there's somebody acting suspicious out there. Before I could tell her the story, he knocked on the door. And I said, crack the door. So He's hiding in there. I I didn't know if it was clear that you're hiding in the apartment, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in the apartment. My ex-wife is there in her pajamas opening the door, cracking for him. And I'm standing there with a pistol. And uh, he pushes the door open. And as soon as he does that, I crack him in the forehead with the pistol. I get him down on the ground. He was a really big guy. And I kicked him and I stomped him and I kicked him and I stomped him unmercifully to the point where my ex-wife felt sorry for him, even though he was there to harm her. Yeah. And uh, we called the police. They called an ambulance for him because he was hurt pretty bad. They get to his truck, and he, he's got a dozen pair of women panties, women's panties under his front seat. Oh, my God. I took his ID from him when he was on the ground to see who he was, and he was a mental patient somewhere. And uh, so he was a crazy. And uh, so anyway, he got 10 years probation, which I never quite understood. But uh, so anyway, yes, I hate thieves. You know, by then, Jesus I'm a full-fledged... Uh, you know, a well-employed man, and I hated thieves, so I took it out on him. But uh, I, I'm not the psychopath. I don't believe in infidelity. I don't believe in stealing. Uh, but the flavor of the book is a bouncer, nightclub bouncer, thief who drove Corvettes, had a pocket full of money, and lived a, a life like a, a king. And it was fun at the time, but I cared about nobody but myself. I wonder if the guy that broke into the apartment, if he had killed any of the women before. You can completely lose that. You don't even need those. They're not really relevant. You know, I never, uh, we, we immediately the next day moved out of the apartment complex because we didn't feel safe there, uh, especially uh, Della's mother. And uh, we, we, moved, we moved away some, somewhere. And we'd only been in, in Dallas for a short period of time. And... Uh, we, we shortly after that bought a house. We were just basically living in an apartment until we could find the house that we wanted to, to you know, move to. But, uh, yeah, it was a harrowing experience. Um, and he definitely got the wrong house. You know, as a, um, as a bouncer, and I was a pretty good-sized guy, and, um, I, I was not the best house to pick. You know, I'm not saying we can't all be fooled, <laughs> but there was easier places to rob or break in than my house, you know? It's smart to be aware enough to be able to tell that somebody's even about to do something a lot of times. Well, especially these days, everybody's got their 
heads stuck in their phones and stuff like that and wouldn't have even noticed that that was about to happen. Um, probably being a criminal, you notice more of when somebody's up to no good or whatever. Absolutely, and I to this day, I have a little bit of distrust as I try to convince my daughters to be the same way. Some people befriend you uh, for the wrong reasons, and I'm skeptical until they prove otherwise. It's not, in other words, you're guilty until proven innocent, you know? Yeah. Uh, over the, the pitfalls, I'm, I'm talking about the money and the cars and the women, which was an unlimited supply. I think my first indication of how cool money was, one of the things that we used to do, I, I've done armed robberies too, and we especially like to rob high, high dollar drug, drug dealers, the ones that handle a lot of money. And I had friends in uh, Van Nuys, California, and they told me about a guy that needed to be robbed. So I went out there and, uh, to, you know, to, to rob him. And we made a good lick. His house was full of money. His house was full of drugs. I didn't know what to do with the drugs. The guy that was helping me, his take was all the drugs. I got all the money and he was perfectly happy. You know, I don't even know what the stuff was that we stole, but I do know what the money was. And I had a Corvette that I was running. Uh, it was a 67 Corvette with a uh, 427 motor in it, hopped up, headers, wheel wells were cut out for slicks. And I drove that on the street. And I blew my engine playing around at the, at the uh, drag strips in California. So uh, the girl I was dating at the time, I went with her to this hot rod shop and uh, told them I needed a new motor for my Corvette. And while I'm there, I made a deal with them and it was $7,500 for the high-powered motor that I wanted. And again, at the time, you know, that was a whole lot of money, and even today. Yeah. I flipped out $7,500. My friend Emily is going to have fun editing this together because everything just stopped for some reason. But we are back, and... Uh, we are going to continue on with a couple more uh, stories of what happened uh, after the the crimes and, and stuff like that and the fact that you aren't a criminal anymore and a couple more things about um, the trial and such. So, um, where were we? You were at a uh, racetrack in Van Nuys. I guess you could just start off with uh, what you're going to go off with now. Um you got into money and money was enticing and there's uh, women liking you just for your money and stuff like that. Well, I, I didn't always equate them liking me just for my money. Well, not that. Certainly, <laughs> I'm not that ugly, but uh, <laughs> it didn't hurt, it didn't hurt me. That's for darn sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I also, I kind of bounce around from the beginning to the end. I did end up in prison, but when I was in prison, I was in three different prisons in uh, three different States. But I ended up, my last nine months in prison, they gave me an option for work release uh, or school release. And I needed money really bad. I wanted the job so I could save some money. But uh, I, I chose school. And I chose beauty school, cosmetology. And I did that for two reasons. One, I wanted to be immersed in a female atmosphere because <laughs> I hadn't seen a girl in two and a half years. And uh, secondly, I was hoping to, you know, actually have a relationship with somebody. So I chose beauty school, was shocked the 
uh, prison staff that had to vote on whether I got it or not. Uh, I was considered a rough guy in prison and, um, you know, they couldn't imagine why I would want to do hair. Uh, I couldn't imagine why any guy wouldn't want to do hair, you know. So anyway, I, I, go to, I go to beauty school. There's 30 girls there, and I work my way through all the good-looking ones. And uh, I had zero money. I had to get a dollar tip to have any kind of a lunch at all. But I finally met a couple of girls there. One of them had a trust fund, and she was really ugly but really nice. And they knew my background. There was two of them. And they wanted to hang around with me because they were so country and they were, I had always been taken care of by their parents. So they wanted to go to strip joints because I was hanging around strip joints uh, a lot. They, I had from 6 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. The school got out at 5. So I had five hours to catch the bus back. So I had five hours every evening to occupy myself before I had to go back to prison. So I would take them with me to strip joints. They would buy me drinks, and I had relationships going on with some of the strippers. And uh, <laughs> yeah, bring the mic out just a little bit, a little bit out here, yeah. All right, I had you know I had relationships with some of the strippers, and they all knew me on a first name basis. So I brought these two country girls in that never even seen the inside of a strip joint. And next thing you know, one of them was wearing the stripper outfit and walking around, and the guys in there were talking to her, and she had all this. I didn't want anything physical with her. She was not attractive to me. <laughs> but in that stripper outfit, she appealed to a lot of the guys in there. And she had all this attention from guys she never had in her life. Anyway, so I would do that regularly with them. And they begged me when I got out, because uh, I was in Texas at the time and I lived in Kansas City. I went back to Kansas City. They said, please stay. I'll put you in an apartment. I'll pay your rent. I can't do these things without you. <laughs> they wanted to do all this crazy stuff. They never had the know-how, or I'm not going to say it was smart, but they never lived that world. And they just loved the things I showed them, you know, and to this day they probably regret it now. But uh, anyway. Well, I've never had anybody offer to pay my rent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but I went back, back home, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, beauty school turned out to be great for me because I took that license. I did hair for a short while when I got out. And then Redken Laboratories Hair Products hired me. They came in my salon. I actually put in a salon with stolen money, and I had to explain how I got the money to open that up with my parole officer. When I got out, I pulled a few jobs because I just didn't have anything. I needed a car, I needed money. So I wasn't clean even after I got out. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, I got this uh, salon. Redken comes in. They hire me. I ended up going through. I worked for them for five years. I went in as a field rep, district manager, regional manager over nine states and got transferred to Chicago. I was, you know, a regional manager fairly high up at Redken. And I was calling on a, a big beauty concern up there with 25 locations. It was the third largest in America. And the guy offered me the vice president's job. And I loved the job I, I was doing. Uh, but he offered me to double my salary, which uh, he, he paid me 50000 a year and a car of my choice. I couldn't help but take the job. So I became a vice president. But during the uh, interview process to get this job as vice president, remember, I'm f pretty fresh out of uh, prison, you know, and I was wearing a suit going in giving sales meetings, and I always felt like a thug in a suit. I never <laughs> felt like it worked. Or a truck driver in a suit. I never felt like a businessman because of my back. I couldn't forget about it. But people didn't realize that when they met me because I was fairly well-spoken. 
<laughs> so I'm interviewing, and I, I'm tired of waiting. This guy keeps interviewing me, having me talk to his H&R department about the job. And I, I'm thinking, you know, he's wasting my time. And I'm sitting there one night having dinner with him and his wife, and I had my uh, second wife with me. And we were just talking. And again, I hadn't got the job yet. And she talked about me being a bouncer. She brought that up, and I certainly didn't want to discuss that with a guy that was interviewing me for a vice president's job. And she goes, he said, a bouncer? And she said, yeah, he was terrible. He would knock him down and kick him in the face. And I said, <laughs> oh, her name no. was Debbie. I said, Debbie, don't be telling this man that. I'm interviewing for a vice president. No, he said, no, no, that's good. That's good. And I couldn't figure out what he meant. Anyway, to make a long story short, this extremely rich Jewish man, member of Menza, and taught English at the University of Chicago, was hated by everybody. So he wanted a sales manager, but he loved to hang around with me because he felt safe. He needed a bodyguard. <laughs> so I went to work for him and I was doing the job well. I was there for a couple years. New sports car, I was up to 65 grand a year. We had trouble with the salesman and he asked me to take the salesman. I, I mentioned, I said, I'd sure like to whip that salesman's ass. He goes, go ahead. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm serious. He goes, I am too. He said, you want me to whip one of your salesmen? He goes, yeah. Well, they came in every Monday for a sales meeting. He said, you take him to lunch and you whip his ass. Now, we're talking about a large multi-million dollar corporation that's currently owned by Sally's Beauty, all right? I tell you this guy, I want to talk to him. I get him in my new sports car that the man bought me for going to work for him, which was a 280Z at the time, which was pretty hot back then. I drove him out the parking lot and up in the country to a rock quarry. He started getting nervous because he knew there were no restaurants out there. <laughs> I pulled into this rock quarry and I jerked his door open. This was a great big guy. He was about six foot four, but he was like 55 and I was 30. And I was a heavy duty weightlifter. At one time I could bench 385 fairly consistently. And I also had a lot of experience, you know, fighting. So I was kind of dangerous. Anyway, I tried to get him out of the car and he was so big and heavy, I couldn't drag him out. And he was begging me not to beat him up. And I said, okay, but I'm gonna give you this advice. Don't ever say another negative word about me or this company, or not only are you gonna quit, but I'm gonna to come to your house with a baseball bat. Oh we drove God. back to the business and it's still there today. It's a big company. I drove him up in the parking lot, I let him out of the car. And he said, this never happened. I said, that's right, this never happened. <laughs> so I go in and my boss said, how'd it go? I told him what I just told you. And he goes, I thought that chicken shit wouldn't fight. And for the next two weeks, he monitored that guy and he was the most positive salesman in the group. So my boss calls me in the office and says, Jordan, I've got some more guys that I think you need to go talk to at lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, at that time, I was starting to feel like an executive and like I had some brains and I realized I was still a thug in a suit and I decided to leave there and open my own uh, beauty supply company and I did that in Dallas. I ended up with, uh, I actually had a total of seven stores at one time, but I had four in Dallas that I sold out to Sally's Beauty several years ago for uh, seven figures and uh, you know, I became quite successful in spite of my past. So part of the moral of my book is basically, uh, you know, I, I, a guy with a GED and a, and a felony record can make it, you can make it, and it's a positive attitude. 
So I, I hope to, you know, stimulate some people to think it's a lost cause, that it's not. Um, and, and going way back to show you what a misfit I was as a young man, I was three days from graduating high school. I had a temper problem. I was violent. I was scary. I was considered the toughest guy in school. I probably wasn't. There's probably someone that equipped me, but they were all afraid of the repercussions after school, what I might do. But I threatened my shop teacher three days before I was going to legitimately graduate high school with a diploma, and I got kicked out, lost all my credits, and ended up having to get a GED. I self-destructed right then. And over the years, I almost self-destructed several times before I uh, got my emotions under control. Uh, it's very important in life to say that. I'm lucky to be here. Some of my friends didn't make it. I, was, I had one killed with me when I was doing something I shouldn't have been. Uh, so anyway, I'm very grateful to be where I'm at. I, I'm grateful that I've been able to have these wonderful daughters like Della, and I've had a terrific career. I hope you'll try uh, and read my book. I think you may enjoy it. And thank you for listening. If you're listening to this from a prison cell, you <laughs> you two can uh, you two can make it out. I guess uh, we will end on that note. But my uh, my dad's he, my dad also I wanted to say that is very interesting about him. He almost never drinks and he never did any drugs. All the times that he was, you know, doing crime and stuff like that. I think that's probably what'll keep you being able to turn around someday. Because a lot of people will do stuff and be doing that at the same time, you know, and then they'll become old and crazy but uh anyway uh my dad's book is called burning bar and it is on amazon if you uh want to buy it and hear more stories like this and uh i guess at this point i'll let my corgi out because he really wants to bark thank you for uh joining us on the night we met and i hope you enjoyed it <laughs>